Um, the invitation to address you tonight is a tremendous honor for me. Um, this is a place I matriculated to in 1973. I came here, I was filled with a sense of awe and uh, anticipation about the tremendous amount of knowledge that was going to open up before me while I was here. Um, but it was also uh, a place I came to with a bit of fear and trepidation. Was I ready uh, for what I was in for? Uh, what were my thoughts? Um, little did I know that I was in for a period of some uh, intense uh, personal development and growth. Um, but just as important, it was here at Franklin and Marshall that I really uh, came to know and love economics and uh, made the choices um, that uh, essentially set the course uh, for my pro professional work for decades to come. And I'm very grateful to Franklin and Marshall as an institution for what it's provided to me. So my topic tonight is economics and the Federal Reserve after the crisis. So F&M is where I first began studying seriously economics, so I thought that was an appropriate topic. I, I came here, I should say, uh, thinking that um, I might study government and um, get a degree in law. I mean, and a, a lot of, at least at the time, a great many uh, F&M students studied government and went on to law school. Uh, but I, I, I chose economics uh, instead. I'm not going to tell any law professor, lawyer jokes now, um, but I do know a, a, a joke about some economists. It guaranteed, you, you couldn't transform this into a lawyer joke. So there are these three economists, and they're hunting. Now, they've each got rifles. They're, they're off in the western wilderness, and they see an elk. They're hunting for elk. There's an elk on the hillside, and one says, let me try. And he takes aim, raises his rifle, shoots, misses five yards to the right. I'm not doing very well with this. So the second economist says, let me try. Um, and he raises his rifle and um, shoots and misses five yards to the other side, whereupon the third economist says, we got him. So, um, uh, you know, just a sense of, of uh, how little it takes to entertain an economist uh, and uh, uh, a proof that I wasn't going to tell a lawyer joke. Um, so the other parts of the title of my talk, the Federal Reserve and after the crisis, the crisis was obviously very consequential for our country, um, and we're living with those effects now. And the Federal Reserve was at the center of the crisis, and I was part of the Federal Reserve then. So it seemed logical to share with you some of my reflections on what we went through. So as I look back on my years at, at F&M, um, there's a vivid memory that comes to mind and to me connects to my experiences during the crisis. Now it wasn't from an economics class, it was from a seminar I took in government from Professor Robert Gray, I'm not sure if he's in, uh, I think he's out of town, I couldn't be here. Um, and uh, it was international politics, I think, and we were studying, uh, we spent a little time studying the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I believe we read Graham Allison's book, Essence of Decision, it was popular at the time. And uh, one broad insight that I took away from that course was that a critical influence on the choices made by policymakers during that crisis was the theory that they brought to the table. Uh, their conceptual understanding of the fundamental forces that were at work in the world, the part of the world that they were grappling with um, as they were doing their policy work. Moreover, I also came away with the insight that 
uh, it's often the case that several, more than one at least, plausible theories are on the table, are available to policymakers, not too inconsistent with the data. And since the financial crisis, I've reflected often on the role of economics in shaping the policy response to what we went through in 2007 and 2008. There is no substitute for theorizing about the world uh, because there's no other way to form a judgment about how a policy might affect things that you care about. To put it another way, if you think you have an idea about how a policy is going to have an effect, what effect it's going to have, you have a theory in mind. And it pays to be careful and thoughtful about it. The challenge for policymakers, particularly for central bankers, um, is choosing what theories to place weight on. Now, you can search for appropriate models by uh, taking the models to real-world observations, comparing them to data, seeing how well they do. Um, but at times, observations are consistent with more than one model, and you're, you're a bit stuck uh, for what to go on. So policymakers are at times forced to choose between competing theories. A recent, in recent years, there's, there's been a trove of um, new previously classified information about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And because I studied it when I was here, I read magazine articles about it. I'm by no means any expert, but this new information has included transcript of, transcripts of recordings that President Kennedy made with his top advisors um, at the time, the Executive Committee of the National Security Council. And these have shed, according to scholars, these have shed fascinating new light on this critical episode. So our understanding of the financial crisis is going to benefit similarly um, because we've got some new previously classified information that's emerging. The Federal Open Market Committee, this is the policymaking arm of the Federal Reserve System that Professor Kalari referred to, releases transcripts of its meetings and video conference calls with a five-year lag. So in January 18th of this year, the transcripts were posted for 2007, and that's the year the financial market turmoil began. That's really, the middle of that year is really when it began. These records of the deliberations are a real fascinating window into how we were thinking um, about what was going on then. Now, you may have seen, you may have caught some uh, popular media references to these, the release of these minutes, these, these transcripts. The, the popular accounts of the financial crisis in general um, have focused heavily on the events that took place later in 2008. You'll remember in the fall of 2008 was when Lehman failed and AIG and there was the, the TARP, the big um, bailout fund that bill that passed Congress. And much of the media coverage of our minutes, of these transcripts rather, has focused on the extent to which the committee uh, didn't know what was around the corner. In fact, much of the coverage sort of makes fun of us for not realizing how, things, how bad things were going to get in um, 2008. So I find the critiques of Monday morning quarterbacks quite entertaining. That's fine with me. And I agree the, fall, the events of fall of 2008 were, had their roots in what was happening in 2007. And I'll argue that there was a deep connection between the whole sequence of events. But I think it's unproductive to act as if we should have been omniscient. I think that's obviously unfair. Um, it, in fact, uncertainty comes through. You read these transcripts and you realize that it's really hard to know in real time what was coming. 
uh, and things that maybe look obvious in hindsight weren't as obvious then. For example, the transcripts of 2006 contain um, these passages about long briefings we had, long discussions and analysis of the housing market. And you see people say things like, well, could housing prices fall 25 or 30%, which they did. People say, well, maybe. It's never happened in our history. It might happen, but we don't know whether it's going to happen or not. So I think that you know, getting yourself back in real time gives you an appreciation for the, the difficulty of doing policy that way. The transcripts show us, the committee members, really grappling with the unfolding events um, and figure, trying to figure out what to do about it, debating what to do about it. And I'm going to argue alternative assessments were possible, alternative diagnoses were possible, given the information that was available at the time. And the different diagnoses, the different assessments had different implications for policy. So in my remarks tonight, what I want to do is provide an overview of what economics had to offer policymakers uh, in uh, 2007 as the financial crisis began to unfold. Now there's a wide variety of research over the last couple of decades that's directly relevant to financial market instability. And I, I'm not going to survey it in, in a great depth or detail. At the risk of oversimplification, I'm going to highlight two broad alternative views. You can think of these as philosophies or paradigms or whatever term you want to use, but two broad alternative views that have emerged and each with significantly different implications for how to handle a crisis like this. In 2007, the transcripts show one view was chosen and they show the other one set aside. And that choice guided policymakers throughout the, the rest of the crisis. In fact, I think that view has had a major influence on the legislative response and the regulatory response, at least so far since then. Before I begin with uh, an overview of these views, I need to warn you, this is a standard thing that Federal Reserve officials do, uh, that my remarks reflect my own views and not necessarily those of any of my colleagues at the Federal Reserve System. If you have any doubt about this, you can check the 2007 transcripts. So the banking system was obviously at the heart of this crisis. And economists have made a good deal of progress in recent years on the theory of banking. The essence of what it means to be a bank is the use of short-term funding of some sort to invest in longer-term assets, a process that's called maturity transformation, borrowing short and holding longer-term, less liquid assets. Traditionally, this takes the form of a loan portfolio funded through the issuance of deposits, but there are many permutations of this uh, basic arrangement. Intermediate, you know, demandable deposits, things where you can get your money back right away, are short-term, very short-term liability. And bank loans are longer-term liability. They're repaid over several years. Maturity transformation by financial intermediaries provides a form of insurance to depositors who they might need their money quickly for a purchase, an unanticipated purchase, or an unanticipated investment opportunity. By pooling the funds of a lot of depositors, a lot of people who have that potential need to get their money out next week or the next month, the bank can make long-term investments that no one of those depositors would be able to make themselves, both because of the scale of the funds involved, but also even if, it was, even if your deposits match the size of a loan somebody wanted to make, 
you wouldn't want to tie your money up in a loan. You'd want a little bit of insurance that you, you might need your money back in a month or two. Um, so that, that would be too risky arrangement. This provides an insurance that provides a benefit to society um, in the form of um, the investments that are able to take place and the insurance that we're able to provide to people. So this is what maturity transformation is all about. So maturity transformation involves a potential risk of its own. And this is at the heart of the story of financial instability. If a large number of depositors want to withdraw their money all at once, the bank might have trouble raising enough funds to pay everybody. As a result, a firm that has a mismatched balance sheet like this is vulnerable to a run, uh, a, a situation in which people all try and get their money out at once, uh, and the firm is no long, might be no longer able to make payment on uh, all, all of those demands. And this can happen even though it's individually r rational. I mean, it, it looks sort of irrational in, in total, in sum, in aggregate, but it can be individually rational for each one to try and get their money out early. So the thought experiment here corresponds to the wonderful scene in It's a Wonderful Life where George Bailey is at the counter of the Bailey Savings and Loan and I see some nodding heads. Some, pe some people in the room have seen this movie. Um, and uh, all the depositors are there, and they want to get their money out. And he goes around and telling them, I don't, of course I don't have the money. It's in your home, in your home. And he's made mortgage loans to a lot of them. Um, uh, a comment, something that's been commented on by a lot of uh, analysts of this crisis, which, of course, was based on mortgage lending. Um, but it's, it's the situation where everyone wants their money out at once, but, but they can't because it's tied up in illiquid investments that are a good thing if they don't need their money and they can keep it on deposit. In economist terms, uh, technical terms, what I've described is a situation subject to multiple equilibria. Two things can happen. We're not sure which will. One possibility is that depositors will run even though they don't need their money now because they expect everyone else is running. If they think everyone else is running, it makes sense for them to run. If that's true, then everyone's conjectures are correct and everyone makes sense running. The other possibility is people don't run, they don't withdraw early because they expect no one else is going to withdraw unless they need their money, so it makes sense for them to leave their money on deposit. So either one is individually rational, a sensible sort of outcome. Now, one way to prevent this bad outcome is to provide government-backed insurance for deposits. In fact, in the simplest versions of this theory, insurance has, government insurance has almost magical powers. The mere presence of the commitment to insure these deposits um, gives depositors confidence that the money will be there if they leave it there. So it, it sort of takes away the incentive to run for the exits. And so nobody needs to really go because they're confident deposit, deposit insurance will pay off if they go. In fact, the magical aspect is that you never need to use, actually, government deposit insurance. It just stands there as a backstop and nobody needs to use it because nobody ever runs because they're confident it's there. It just shuts down the bad equilibrium and all we get is the equilibrium where people do the right thing and leave their money on deposit. And this, this intuition is pretty easy to grasp, I think. It's pretty straightforward. Um, and, but it wasn't until 1983 that two economists, Douglas Diamond and Philip Dibvig um, published an article that laid out this logic in a precise and rigorous uh, form. 
this insight has had tremendous influence on how economists think about banking and financial markets, and in particular, financial instability. As I'll discuss, their portrayal of the inherent fragility of financial markets has had a tremendous impact on policy as well during this crisis. Now, government-supplied deposit insurance has been understood for a long time to carry its own risks. There are problems with it as well. In the late 1970s, two economists, John Kerrigan and um, Neil Wallace, Neil Wallace is at Penn State, pointed out that deposit insurance created incentives uh, that could lead to socially excessive risk-taking. And you can see why. Banks that raise in money through insured deposits have less incentive to avoid large losses, and their depositors have less incentive to monitor and constrain the risk-taking uh, that might be going on because taxpayers could end up holding the bag. It's a heads-I-win, heads-we-win, tails-the-government-deposit-insurance-loses sort of situation. And the, as a result of this problem, this incentive distortion, this moral hazard problem it's called, deposit insurance is usually paired with a, a, a pretty comprehensive regime of regulatory oversight. Indeed, that kind of oversight is a major function of the Federal Reserve System and other federal banking agencies, and it's a major responsibility of people at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Our district, for example, includes Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, the home of Bank of America, and formerly Wachovia, now part of Wells Fargo. Uh, so we have some experience with this, not, not to mention a host of smaller banks in our district. Now, regulation comes with its own implications that need to be taken into account. In this context, one of the most important implications is the incentive that it provides to market participants to find ways to do the same thing you do through a bank, but outside a bank, just outside the reach of those regulatory constraints. So this gives rise to what some people call shadow banking. This is what shadow banking is. Banking-like arrangements of borrowing short, lending long, that take place out the legal, outside the legal confines of something that, as a formal regulatory matter, is classified as a bank. So I'll give you an example of shadow banking. There's many people described, but I'll give you a, 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 a critical one. It's the market for repurchase agreements. A repurchase agreement, often uh, called, uh, nicknamed a repo, uh, is uh, an, a lending arrangement in which a lender buys an asset from a borrower with, and simultaneously enters into an agreement to sell the asset back to the borrower at a future date. So you can see the lender gives up cash, takes an asset, owns the asset for a while, and then later on gives back the asset, trades the asset back for cash and some interest later on. That's a repo. A lot of repos are overnight, um, so the investors providing cash today and getting cash back tomorrow, getting an asset today, giving the asset back tomorrow. This is maturity transformation because the asset is typically something that has a maturity of greater than a day. So it's typically a longer run asset. A lot of times it's a treasury security, U.S. Treasury obligation. So this might be a two-year, five-year, ten-year bond, for example, or it could be a mortgage-backed security. It's typically a long-lived uh, entity. So this is maturity transformation, but it's going on outside, outside a bank in an informal market. So maturity transformation is a key pop property of the repo market. And the repo market and the maturity transformation that's done there 
was a key contributor. In fact, it was the critical nail in the coffin of Bear Stearns, which failed in March of 2008 and uh, was taken over by J.P. Morgan Chase with assistance from the New York Fed. So I've described, I described for you a mechanism, you know, the government deposit insurance for um, preventing self-fulfilling runs. There's another mechanism for preventing self-fulfilling runs. The likelihood of a self-fulfilling run can be influenced by the details of the contract between the depositor and the bank. For instance, suppose the arrangement includes conditions under which the bank can suspend payment, suspend the depositor's rights to withdraw. So it has a little clause in there that says that at the bank's discretion, it can halt payments on deposits and you're just out of luck. Um, so this kind of practice was actually very common in the late 19th century. Uh, and this was a time before the Federal Reserve, before deposit insurance. And banks often, when they faced a large number of depositors, suspended payment for a time. Uh, and this, would, this they would do for the exact purpose of interrupting the dynamics of a run, of slowing down a run. And this type of mechanism actually works, can work pretty well. And in models like the one I described by Philip Dibvig and Douglas Diamond, you can show that if you allow the bank to use tools like this, they can prevent the runs. They can make themselves resilient. They can make themselves robust. They can prevent that fragility from happening to them. Now, that kind of mechanism reduces a bit of the insurance that you get as a depositor. You can withdraw your money anytime except these circumstances under which there's a suspension of payments. So it's sort of like a deductible insurance. You don't get 100% insurance. You don't get first dollar coverage. There's some times where you got to pay your own way. And it, it does that in the interest of aligning incentives and, and ensuring the sustainability of the banking arrangement. And much the way a, a high deductible can help ensure the sustainability of an insurance plan. So this illustrates a, a key point about the study of financial markets and financial institutions and financial arrangements. And it's that the fine details of contractual arrangements can make a big difference. Financial contracts aren't one size fits all. They vary dramatically across different settings. For example, an equity contract where you're a shareholder in some company is typically used in situations like small tech high-tech startup firms. But in other settings, people lend money via a simple debt contract where the agreement to repay is a fixed amount. It pretty much doesn't vary. So economists have worked really hard on this over the last 30 years. Um, and they've made a lot of progress understanding which financial contracts are adapted to different situations, are best adapted to different situations. And they've been able to do this using the tools of a branch of economics called mechanism design. These tools allow you to really ascertain the extent to which a given contract is consistent with the kind of opportunistic behavior that you might see in a borrowing or lending arrangement. Um, for example, you can, you can use these tools to take into account that your trading partner might have better information than you. They might know better than you what the asset's worth. They might know better than you 
whether they're working hard on this project or not. Those kinds of things you can handle in a cohesive way using mechanism design tools. And a famous example, over 30 years ago, um, an economist, Robert Townsend, showed that in certain settings, very precisely defined settings, a plain vanilla debt contract, a fixed repayment, was exactly the optimal thing for a borrowing lender to do. In the sense that there wasn't any other form of contract, a share investment, an option, some other kind of contract, there wasn't anything else that would make one one of the parties, the borrower lender, better off without making the other one worse off. So it, it sort of achieved a point on the frontier between these two. Collectively, they did, they did as, best, as best as they can in this setting with a debt contract. And since then, we've applied, learned how to apply that logic to an array of other settings. That logic applies to financial institutions as well. And because you, you, through this lens, you can view a financial institution as a broad set, a complicated, set of multilateral contracts. And you can ask the question, all right, is, is this set of contracts doing well? Do we understand the, the circumstances in which this kind of financial institution is what emerges, or that kind of financial institution is what emerges? So there's equally famous work, by, again, by Douglas Diamond, this time writing alone in 1984, in which he wrote down a setting in which what emerges looks just like a bank. And it's a setting in which, it was, you know, except for a couple little features, it wouldn't otherwise have been obvious that you'd get a bank. Uh, so it's been a very powerful tool for understanding financial institutions. And it does so because it emphasizes the endogeneity of contracts and institutions. So you, you don't, don't just write down a model where you start by saying, here's a bank, and here's a borrower, and here's a lender. You just write down people, and you see if banks emerge, you see if debt emerges, you see if people use equity, you, you see what happens endogenously inside, inside the environment you've written down. And it takes into account in a systematic way all the various frictions and transactions costs that, that make borrowing and investing and just dealing in the world uh, challenging. Things like limitations to the information one party has. You know, so a seller maybe knows more about the product than you do, or a borrower maybe knows more about the investment than you do or limits on the, the ability to pre-commit to repay in the future. You know, you might take the money and run. So how are you going to keep a borrower, uh, you know, willing to come and repay you in the end? So it, you know, it, it builds on this idea of mutual benefit and that people find contracts that do that. And it's, it's important because it provides a way to understand how contracts and institutions might adapt and evolve in response to a changing environment. One important aspect of the economic environment uh, facing financial institutions is the set of rules imposed um, and the actions taken by the public sector, the government, in its interactions with the financial sector. So um, take, for example, that you know, I talked about these two means of eliminating fragility in a basic model of banking. Uh, one of them relies on the expectations of government support in the event of financial stress. And the other one was that market participants could themselves adapt their arrangements in ways that makes them robust to possible stresses, that makes them less fragile. Well, the private incentives that drive the second approach of making themselves robust and resilient depend on what they believe about the likelihood of government support 
in the event that they get into trouble. If they think support's going to be likely, they have much less of an incentive to adopt resilient arrangements that, that make them uh, less vulnerable to financial distress. So I'm going to pause here. So this is, this is kind of the, the theoretical machinery I've given you. I know it's a lot in a short amount of time. Let me just sort of try and summarize this. Um, if we observe financial institutions or markets in the real world and they seem to be vulnerable to runs, it could be that they're inherently fragile, like that first model of banking that I, I told you about, that we just have multiple equilibria and they're inherently fragile. And in that case, there's this role for government, as we said. It could, however, be that they're vulnerable because of their expectations of government support, expectations that short-circuit the incentive they might otherwise have to adopt more robust arrangements. And this is a dilemma for policymakers because it's hard to tell these two apart. So as policymakers entered 2007, this is what economics had to offer them. Two broad but fundamentally different views of the world. Two theories of financial instability. Essentially two different narratives. And that's what's come out of the crisis. Two different narratives about how the crisis unfolded and why. One of these leads to the view that um, market institutions and contracts are relatively fixed and it views the resulting financial system as inherently prone to the type of instability uh, depicted by that simple model of bank runs that we started with. Under that theory, the expectation of government support might be necessary to make crises less likely, although that support in turn necessitates regulatory oversight and constraints on banks to replace the market discipline that's lost when counterparties are anticipating government intervention. In the alternative view, private financial arrangements are themselves adaptable and endogenous, and much of the vulnerability observed in financial markets is in self an induced response of market institutions and behaviors to the expectations of government backstop support in the event of distress. In the absence of that expectations, there would be more incentives, stronger incentives to seek more robust arrangements, and we'd see less of them. So on the eve of 2007, policymakers were faced with these two broad views, inherent fragility or induced fragility. So I want to turn now to 2007, but before I do, let me just say a word about the lead up to the crisis. Um, it's been five years now uh, since the, the, the mayhem, and uh, there's been a lot written about it, so I don't need to cover all the details. Um, that are going that were going on. I want to highlight three threads in the story leading up to 2007 uh, that go through the backstory. Things that are important. The first is that instances of financial stress have recurred throughout U.S. history from time to time. There were significant bank panics in the second half of the 1900s uh, when investors sought to convert their deposits into cash. There were bank failures that were widespread at the start of the Great Depression when deflation made it hard for borrowers to repay banks. That was where that George Bailey scene came from in It's a Wonderful Life. Bank failures were small and isolated in the 1950s and 60s, but in the 1970s they started growing in frequency and size. 
inflation in the 70s and subsequent regulatory forbearance led to widespread failures among savings and loan institutions in the 1980s. And forbearance was also extended to large money center institutions when they were hammered by loans losses um, on uh, loans to less developed countries in the 70s and 80s. So that's one thread, recurring banking failures and stresses. Second thread has to do with official support. The founding of the Federal Reserve in 1913 gave the Fed the capacity to act as a public sector backstop to banks, a lender of last resort, uh, if you will, in the event of a bank run. Despite this, though, there were widespread bank runs in the Great Depression in the early 30s. The associated losses on deposits and savings and loan deposits were uh, prompted a lot of regulatory response. Um, there were restrict, tighter restrictions on um, banking and uh, bank activities, and we created deposit insurance as part of the New Deal legislation in the 1930s as a result. A third key feature of the story leading up to 2007 is the increasing frequency, starting in the 1970s, of official government support that was outside of the bounds of the official deposit insurance scheme. So we had deposit insurance, and we had a legislative framework and an agency, and it was entitled to pay off depo insured depositors in the event of a bank failure. Um, but starting in the 70s, we started to prov provide government support beyond what was implied by the legislation. This involved a series of successively larger institutions, starting with a, a small one in 1970, Commonwealth Bank in Detroit. The most noteworthy one was Continental Illinois in 1984. Some of you may remember. This prompted um, the congressional testimony afterwards that saw a senior federal bank regulator acknowledge that the largest 11 banks at the time would not be allowed to fail without government assistance. And this was the first public articulation of the notion of too big to fail. That's become, of course, uh, synonymous with this crisis. There were other actions beyond traditional banking that also contributed to this perception uh, that there was an implicit government commitment uh, to dampen financial instability. The notable ones were Penn Central collapse in 1970, the Fed's response to the stock market crash of 1987, and our response to financial distress at a hedge fund, long-term capital management in 1997. That history created a situation at the beginning of this century in which it was widely acknowledged that a large fraction of our banking system and financial system was believed to be backed by explicit or implicit government guarantees. In fact, in 2002, as a research director at the Richmond Fed, I asked two economists uh, to estimate how big that fraction was. They asked them to look at the financial sector and look at all the debt of financial firms and to ask the question how much of that benefited from explicit government support and how much from implicit. And the total was 45%. 45% of the, of the financial sector's liabilities at the end of 1999 benefited from government support. 27% was explicit protection in the form of, mostly in the form of deposit insurance, but also the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation um, guarantees some private pensions. 18% of it was implicit. A lot of that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the government-sponsored housing finance enterprises. So the crisis 
itself is a familiar story to you as well, I'm sure. Home prices crested, began to decline in many markets in late 06, early 07. Cumulative rates of default on the most recent vintage mortgages were starting to climb then, climb precipitously. Mortgages were um, particularly bad um, for um, unusual categories like um, loans with non-standard features like low credit scores, uh, low down payments, minimal documentation, for example. The implication of that data as it came in is that the ultimate loss rate on those mortgages was going to be a lot higher than original expectations. Most of those loans had been securitized and sold, and that dispersed the risk across the financial system. In early 2007, several firms that were involved in the origination and sale of uh, mortgages experienced financial distress, and some even failed, shut down, went out of business. The FOMC transcripts for 2007 throughout that year show us grappling with this problem as the housing market worsened. Strains were emerging in housing finance, and committee participants actively discussed the likely magnitude of the potential fallout, both for the financial system and the real economy. So housing-related turbulence in the financial market came to a head in August of 07. In the market, in particular, for asset-backed commercial paper. So this is a small little niche in the financial world, but it was really critical to the events in August. And the event, the decision we made in August was, I think, critical to the whole crisis. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time, a minute or two, on asset-backed commercial paper. So uh, the acronym is ABCP. It's easy to pronounce, so I'll say ABCP a lot. These securities were backed by the issuers' holdings of a variety of assets. They included mortgage-backed securities of, of some of many types, but not all of it was mortgage-backed securities. In fact, mortgage-backed securities were just a fraction of it. But at, at different issuers, the fraction was different. Some issuers, 20 or 30% were mortgage-backed securities. Some issuers, it was much less or none. So these would be created by a sponsoring financial firm. So think Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Wachovia, Bank of America, big financial firm would sponsor one of these uh, asset-backed commercial paper um, vehicles. They would transfer a portion of assets into a separate legal entity, and that legal entity would issue commercial paper. And the proceeds of issuing commercial paper would be used to fund those assets. So here, again, we're doing maturity transformation. You're issuing commercial paper, matures in 90 days, something around there. And, but they were holding sort of longer-term, less liquid assets. And it was off their balance sheet, so they didn't have to hold capital against those assets. So it was a, a shadow banking maneuver to get around the regulations we had in place, the capital requirements. Now, it, it, was, it was done in a way, the legal documents were set up so that the sponsoring institution had no obligation to come to the rescue of the commercial paper entity. So it was, it was plausible that it didn't really need capital against it, but it turned out not to be the case. So the, the incoming housing market data called into question the value of mortgage-backed securities, and as that happened, the spread on these commercial paper issuances went up. Investors started to demand a higher risk premium on this, these papers, especially on the ones from conduits that were known issuers that were known to have more mortgage-backed securities in them. As the maturing paper came due uh, and matured, and, they, and the, the issuers faced higher interest rates on 
issuing more paper to fund it, they found it more convenient and cheaper to just bring the assets back onto their balance sheet, take the hit to their capital requirement, and fund it uh, by themselves on the bank's balance sheet. So the volume of ABCP that was issued fell dramatically. So you had a flow of credit through this little niche, and all of a sudden the flow got a lot smaller because they were funding it on their balance sheets. And as a result, banks were, they had to fund that, right? So instead of issuing commercial paper, they had to go somewhere for the funds. So they were going to the unsecured market for interbank funding to fund these things. So they were borrowing from other banks, uh, both here and, and around the world. In, it was this environment that we took our first official action. Now, I have to explain a little bit about what the action is. It was sort of subtle. Um, typically, we target the federal funds rate. It's the interbank lending rate. At the time, the target for the federal funds rate was five and a quarter percent. We also, we have a discount window. I mentioned that, you know, when we were founded in 1913, it was around the discount window being able to lend to banks. We kept the discount rate, the rate we charged banks, a full percentage point above the federal funds target. That was so they didn't have an incentive to go borrow there and lend to other people. They only borrowed when they really needed it. What we did on a video conference call on the evening of August 16th, a Thursday, was decide to lower that from a percentage point to a half a percentage point. So we lowered it from six and a quarter to five and three quarters. And it might not a huge move, but of highly symbolic importance. And we took a number of actions to enhance the symbolic importance of that. The move reflected a judgment made on that call, and you can read the transcript of that call and see everything we said about it on that call. It made a it reflected a judgment that deteriorating conditions in the ABCP market were creating strains in the banking system and that without the expansion of Fed lending, it would reduce the supply of credit to the rest of the economy. It was, it was almost as if it was a run in that simple banking model, people pulling out of their funds, their funds out of the ABCP market. So we're interpreting the ABCP market through the lens of that simple model of, of bank runs. In this view, the, the problem was compounded by the stigma that banks seem to associate with the Fed's discount window. And this is the idea if that your counterparties found out that you were borrowing from the Federal Reserve's discount window, they might downgrade their assessment of your creditworthiness. They might come to the conclusion if you needed credit from the Fed, you must not be in as, in as good a shape as they thought. So we announced this discount rate reduction the next morning at 9 a.m., 8 a.m. Um, and later that morning, uh, two Fed officials spoke on a phone call to um, a number of large banks, a dozen or, or two dozen banks, um, and urged them not to think of borrowing as a sign of weakness, to urge them to think of it as a sign of strength. The following week, four of the four largest banks in the U.S. borrowed from their discount windows in a coordinated sort of show of strength, like, hey, this isn't so hard. You know, we're going to borrow from the discount window. Uh, and that was a way, their way of demonstrating the propriety of borrowing from the Fed. So I'd argue that the diagnosis made that night on the 16th uh, set the direction for policy prescriptions for the entire financial crisis as it unfolded. And the basic diagnosis was, and prescription was that central bank credit would be used, we would try and use central bank credit to the extent we can to alleviate strains in an inherently fragile financial system. Now, when we did this, after we did this, these maneuvers in, in August, the flow of borrowing from the Fed seemed to remain relatively low, despite us reducing the price of Fed credit. 
After that, we, we introduced new programs. There was one at the end of December, the term auction facility, and you can see us debate that on a conference call in December in the transcripts. Uh, that was an auction, a way of sort of auctioning off uh, reserve bank credit. And then over the course of 2008, you know the rest. Uh, there were a series of rescues um, and lending programs that used central bank credit to try and alleviate strains in the credit markets. So on the transcript of the August 2007 call, you can see that I questioned the presumption that markets were suffering from a problem uh, for which increased Fed credit was the right solution. I thought that an alternative diagnosis of the situation seemed quite plausible, that a deterioration in housing market conditions was causing a fundamental reevaluation of housing-related financial instruments. People were changing their minds about what they were fundamentally worth. Exposures to those revaluations were spread throughout the financial system. So there was uncertainty about the, counter, the creditworthiness of counterparties. And there was some opacity about just how much you knew, you were able to know about what they held in terms of mortgage-backed, mortgage-related assets. And that caused investors to demand higher risk premium, higher compensation for the credit risk they were under. So for ABCP sponsors, bringing asset back, assets back onto their balance sheet was less costly than making more payments to creditor, to investors. And that reduced the volumes in the ABCP market, but it requires raising funds from, more sor from other sources, such as the interbank market, and that in turn contributed to the observed volatility in interbank rates that we saw around then. The ABCP market did not seize up. This is a term you hear used about credit market strains, that markets are clogged or, or stuck or seized up or frozen. It didn't seize up, it just moved somewhere else in the financial system. Those flows just moved somewhere else. So my sense was that what was happening was plausibly efficient, plausibly effective way for the financial system to react to the hand it was dealt. The housing market did what it did, and we can debate, it's probably the su su subject of an entirely different lecture, why the housing market boomed and then bust, and then experienced a bust, and these losses came headed towards the financial sector. But given these losses were on their way, the financial se sector was sort of a coping and adapting as in a plausibly efficient manner to information that was forcing people to revise their sense of what the underlying assets were worth. If that's true, then central bank lending by subsidizing borrowers is likely to have undercut the private lending that would have taken place in those markets. Moreover, central bank lending in that situation would increase moral hazard by reducing the, per the cost that financial market participants perceive to be associated with themselves experiencing distress in the future. In crises like this, and every time it's happened, you'll read, when you read accounts, there's a, a tension that policymakers are very aware of. They're, they're aware of the fact that if they staunch the pain now with government support, they're setting a precedent that's going to erode incentives down the road. They're very well aware that they're enhancing moral hazard when they do this. But typically that's thought of as a long-run issue. 
Typically, the thinking is, here's an isolated crisis. Let's just get through this. Then we can turn our attention to containing moral hazard. This crisis was different, though. So in this crisis, it wasn't just a future crisis that you were affecting the incentives for. It was the next chapter in the current crisis. You were setting a precedent that sent a signal about how you would behave in the months ahead, not years ahead or decades ahead, in the months ahead. So each new move expanded institutions' reliance on Fed lending, and it had the effect of increasing expectations of official support later on in the crisis. So it seems quite plausible to me that the signal sent by the Fed's lending actions in August 2007 dampened the willingness of troubled institutions such as Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers to seek safer solutions to the strains they were facing. They could have raised capital. They could have sold assets. They could have reduced their reliance on short-term funding. They could have backed away from maturity transformation. They could have taken steps to make themselves less fragile. And I, have to, I believe that the actions we took dampened their incentives to do so. So in March of 2008, Bayer and many other large investment banks remained dependent on overnight funding in repo markets to fund a lot of illiquid mortgage-based assets. The perceived likelihood of support in that event, I think, had to have affected their incentives. Um, and then after Bayer lost funding in mid-March, the critical fear that we faced that policymakers faced, was that if we didn't support them, investors would pull away from other investment banks as well. Essentially, backstop lending was viewed as necessary because expectations of backstop lending were in place. If we didn't fulfill those expectations, a massive readjustment in the, expect in the assessment of the likelihood of us doing that would be caused. So it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. We were backed into a quarter and had to had to follow through on those expectations. I believe that a more measured response by the Federal Reserve in August of 2007 could have resulted in significantly less instability in 2008. I recognize I say this with the full benefit of hindsight, but that's my, assessive, my assessment. The aggressive response we made reflected this assessment of inherent fragility. I think if we'd put more weight on the, on the notion that the fragility we saw could have been induced by expectations of government support, we might have played our hand differently and 2008 might have turned out differently. So let me turn to after the crisis. And here my remarks will be brief and I can open it up to questions. After the crisis, naturally, attention is turned to the subject of financial reform. And not surprisingly, these alternative visions of financial stability yield different prescriptions for the road ahead. The main engine of post-crisis financial policy is the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. This is a massive new rule book of enhanced standards for regulation and market practices. Both the inherent fragility view and the induced fragility view find voice in this legislation. Accordingly, the law has some internal contradictions. It has its good points and it has its bad points. There's no doubt that interpretation and implementation of this law and other efforts to continue to promote financial stability are going to continue to be influenced by the alternative theoretical perspectives that I've described for you. It would take a separate lecture to really do justice to the, 
Dodd-Frank Act. There's a lot in there. But I'm going to highlight one project, one aspect of that bill that I believe holds out the best hope, um, the best promise of improving financial stability, no matter which view we subscribe to. Title I of Dodd-Frank requires that important financial firms submit credible resolution plans. And the, the, the nickname for this is living wills. Uh, that is, large financial firms have to submit a plan for exactly how they would be wound down in the event of bankruptcy. And it has to be a plan that involves no government support. If we could get that, credible plans for resolving large financial institutions without government support, it would bolster policymakers' commitment to refrain from rescues that in turn would induce fragility. So if we can get to that point, maybe policymakers won't be, feel backed into a corner and forced to support, forced to rescue. On the other hand, a detailed living will provides a roadmap for restructuring a firm so that it isn't inherently fragile. It's the way to find out whether they would be inherently fragile without changes to their structure. So many commentators, I'll, I'll, I'll remark on one other thing about the aftermath of the crisis. Many commentators argue that the crisis discredited modern economic science. Uh, as you might suspect, I disagree. I've pointed out along the way several economists who warned long ago about the risks associated with maturity transformation and with government backstops. For some commentators, uh, the crisis demonstrated that financial arrangements are inherently more fragile uh, than we had thought. But I, I've come away with a different view, that it, it showed how much fragility we can induce um, with ambiguous rescue policy. So just to conclude, there's no doubt that um, the crisis is going to stimulate research for decades to come. Research is still now being produced that's shedding new light on the Great Depression, which is decades ago. Given the magnitude of the interventions we saw, given the magnitude of the consequences of what we've been through, that research that improves financial policy could yield enormous social benefits. In this connection, I'd note that our most recent estimates at the Richmond Fed are that as of December 31st, 2011, 57% of the financial sector's liabilities benefit from perceived government support. That's up from that 45% figure I cited for you for over a decade ago. This reflects in part the expansion of implied commitments based on new precedents that were set during this crisis. In my view, uh, this growth in the government support for the financial sector is not sustainable. And as economic pol policy challenges go, I'd place this second only to our federal fiscal imbalances. I sincerely hope we can make progress in the years ahead. Um, so I'd urge you to study economics so you can be part of that progress. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can, we can improve how we do this and improve the relationship between the government and the private sector. So thank you very much. Um, again, it's been an honor and a pleasure. I'd be happy to take some questions now.
Uh, we were facing a, a real challenge then. Um, at that point, expectations had been built up that we were going to support. We supported Bear. Uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were taken over by the government. I, I think we were in a, um, you know, a desperate situation then. Um, it, it was it was bound to be chaotic at that point, no matter what we did, because we'd handled so many different companies so many different ways. Um, the the TARP legislation was really controversial, um, but at that point, um, it was going to be hard for official Washington to articulate a line and say, we're going to support institutions on this side of the line and not support people on others, because we'd done it in inconsistent ways. We'd moved, from, we'd moved the line around so many times. It, was, it wasn't going to be credible, no matter what we said, I don't think. So we essentially threw in the towel and said, write the hugest check that you can think of that could possibly cover everything we'd want to bail out or rescue. And that's essentially, and, and then we'll, we'll start from scratch. We'll rip everything up. We'll, we'll do it right the next time. I think that was the attitude. And I think I was right then. I think the, the more interesting question is what would have happened if we played our hand differently in August of seven? And that's what I've been wrestling with in reflection on this. The whole financial system missed an opportunity between August 07 and August 08 to, to batten down the hatches. Um, there was a lot of capital raising that went on in that, that, epi in that time period. Um, a, a lot of firms sort of got extra capital in. Not a lot, but, but a fair amount. Um, and there was some reduced dependence on short-term lending, but not nearly what, what could have happened. So. Um, firms like Lehman and Bear were still dependent on overnight RP markets for funding. They didn't change the business model when it, 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 it looks, in August 07, it looks as if we should have been expecting some rocky roads ahead. We, we missed an opportunity um, for the system to, to, to make itself safer. Um, and th that's where I think we really missed the opportunity. Well, let me let me add to that. So, uh, so you know, people talk about AIG and and uh, the other institutions. My sense is that the bankruptcy of a large financial firm is plausibly manageable. Uh, if you look at Lehman, n no one failed as a direct result of Lehman. No one went bankrupt as a direct result of Lehman. So there wasn't that sort of domino effect that people talk about. Um, and, you know, sure, the, the case has been in bankruptcy. People have had funds tied up. Um, but it, it's a process we know how to deal with. Think about airline bankruptcies. People don't blink at an airline bankruptcy now. And yet they've got lots of people that have little pieces of paper, kind of like banknotes almost, you know, the airline tickets. And people are willing to fly on an airline that's in bankruptcy. It, it, seems, it just seems plausible to me that, that we could workably resolve the bankruptcy of a large institution. And I, I think it's got to be the case. There was someone over here that was about to speak when I interrupted you.
It's a good question. Um, so we, we think about things, the terminology we use is ma maximum employment. Um, you know, how high could employment be? How low could unemployment be and still be consistent with price stability? I think it's a moving target. I think it's something that's affected by the business cycle. I think it's something that varies over the business cycle. I think when real shocks hit the economy, the, the sort of the natural, we call it the natural rate of unemployment goes up and slowly comes down. And I think we've had a tremendous uh, shock to the labor markets. Um, I think uh, labor markets have been severely impacted by this. And um, it's not clear the natural rate isn't fairly elevated right now and hasn't taken a long time to come down. Um, and uh, so I think it's, it's not clear that the natural rate isn't more like seven right now than, than five or six. It'll come down over time as we work through the process of, of absorbing um, a huge number of, of workers in the labor market that you know, maybe their skills aren't, poor, aren't well matched to, to what we need going forward as the housing market recovers, um, you know, as, as consumers regain a bit of confidence. Um, so I, I don't think of it in terms of a fixed full employment number. I think of it in terms of a, a rate that, that varies over time with shocks to the economy. That's a really good question, and uh, you know the question illustrates, um, you know, it, it illustrates the you know, the danger of, and and the problems associated with uh, a government entity making choices um, about supporting some institutions' creditors and, and other and not supporting other institutions' creditors. Because it leaves us vulnerable to the perception that it's capricious, uh, accidental, or haphazard, uh, the way we decide things. I think, I know the policymakers involved, I think they honestly thought in each instance they were choosing um, based on a sort of a comprehensive sense of the costs and benefits. And I, th I think they were genuinely thinking about Main Street, about economic agents, economic activity all over the country. I don't think they were... I don't think it was favoritism to large institutions that motivated them. Um, but uh, that how that calculus played out shifted over time. And I think that's, that, that illustrates as well the weakness of a, of a, of a policy that's d inherently discretionary, that it's ambiguous, where we, we don't have a clear set of principles, a clear statement of this is in, this is insured, this gets support, and this is not. A situation where it's up to the discretion of a of a, a federal official of some sort um, is, is one that's that's vulnerable um, to being backed into a corner and being forced to lend just because everyone expects you to, and it, it's it's um, it's one that leaves the official vulnerable to being accused of um, an end run around the congressional appropriations process and the constitutional checks on that, checks and balances on that.
That's a really good question too. So we've we've um, thought a lot about um, called exit strategies, sort of the name of it. Um, and a couple of years ago, we released a statement of principles. It's sort of the end of one of our minutes, one of our meetings, uh, in which we kind of laid out what we thought was the most likely sequence for things to happen. So there'll come a time at which we raise interest rates. Um, right now, they're very low, less than a quarter of a percentage point. At some point, we'll raise the interest rate we pay on excess reserves. Right now, that's 25 basis points. The expectation is that that'll bring the constellation of other rates up both because people are going to expect short-term interest rates to be higher, the path of short-term interest rates to be higher, um, you know, and because of the obvious sort of arbitrage relationships there. Um, before we do that, we're likely to stop reinvesting um, maturing parts of our proceeds. So we've got a lot of bonds now, treasury securities, mortgage-backed securities, and when the proceeds come in, we reinvest them. Uh, and we're going to stop reinvesting at some point before we raise interest rates. After we raise interest rates, we would um, start selling securities, uh, selling them outright. So how that process works in sort of macroeconomic terms, whether it's volatile or smooth, um, you know, whether it occurs at a low unemployment rate or high unemployment rate, whether we can do it before inflation rises or not, that's the $64,000 question. Um, looking back, we have two recent episodes to draw on, uh, episodes in which we tightened and pretty much maintained price stability. Um, one was 2003 and 2004, and the other was 1993, 94, 1994, chiefly. 1994, inflation was low and stable, and we raised rates before inflation rose. But it was a, a choppy process, and uh, there was a lot of bond market volatility as Traders were trying to sort out, well, how fast are they going to go? Are they going to go fast, slow? So we would move a meeting, skip a meeting, move a big amount, next meeting. Um, and it was a, a volatile process. In 0304, my sense is we took pains to smooth out the process. So we telegraphed a couple of meetings in advance. We're likely to start raising rates in June of 04. And then we, we telegraphed that we were going to um, raise rates the phrase was a measured pace. So we said we were, we were going to tighten policy at a measured pace. So we went up a quarter of a percentage point every meeting. And we, we didn't change the schedule of meetings, how many meetings we had a year. So that kind of baked in the pace at which we were going to raise rates. Um, I think a case can be made in hindsight, purely in hindsight, uh, that we got it too slow there, that we should have done maybe 27 basis points, 28, something like that. Um, I don't know the precise amount. I'm being a little facetious there. Um, but that we could have gone tighter because from 04 to 07, inflation averaged 3%, not 2%, which is what we're aiming at. Um, so the danger I see is that uh, the reserves on bank balance sheets are such a huge number that a small mistake by us in terms of the pace of pulling reserves out of the banking system could mean a large could have large consequences in terms of money creation, lending, and inflationary pressures. And uh, you know, my fear is that we start off too slow, inflation pressures emerge, and we have to scramble to catch up. Uh, that's kind of my biggest fear about the exit process. Hope that helps.
Um, so there, there are a lot of other good things. I mentioned other good points in Dodd-Frank, and there are good things we've been doing apart from Dodd-Frank. So increases in capital requirements, A number one. And you, if you look back, capital held by the largest institutions much higher than it used to be. Second thing to focus on is liquidity. Um, these large institutions are far less dependent on um, short-term money markets than they used to be, and they have far larger liquidity buffers uh, to, to help them weather any shocks and withdrawal of markets away from them. Uh, so those two things are very important. But I mentioned living wills, and I think that's critical. Uh, we have to build credible plans. I think it's essential that we, we, we build credible plans that are resilient to a lot of different possibilities um, so that we have confidence in the event of distress or an event of a failure of a large institution that we can resolve them without government support. And it won't be until we set an example by actually doing that with some large institution that a promise not to bail out large institutions is going to be credible. Mm -hmm. um, if our national economy continues to show small incremental improvement and healthcare continues to rise, do you think our national policymakers will be more willing to cut defense expenditures? And personally, do you believe that tax and spending cuts are a way to pull a stressed economy into recovery? So our, our, over the long run and in the short run, uh, we face federal fiscal imbalance. Um, and it, it can't go on. The paths you see from the CBO, those projections, they're not going to happen. Uh, at some point, we're going to run into a, a, a brick wall, in, in essence. Um, so some adjustments got to be made, and it'll be less painful the sooner we make it. And I think that's why forces were coalescing over the, have been coalescing over the last couple of years around doing something. So it looks like policymakers are about to cut defense spending. Uh, the sequester, uh, a lot of widespread commentary that people are going to let that they're going to let it happen. I think that anytime you contemplate a fiscal consolidation, raising taxes, reducing spending, there's always a fear of a short-run adverse effect on the economy. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind sort of what you're about, why you're doing that. That the bent, that that having that balance in the long run is going to be better for growth better for welfare, better for the economy. It's a matter of where we want to spend our not money. Um, and um, getting that balance right is key. Um, so I worry, you know, I worry that we're just not settling the question when we know essentially what all the pieces of the puzzle look like. Um, we've been hearing from our contacts around um, the district, and I know some of my colleagues have been hearing this from around the nation, that um, there are a lot of businesses, households that are apprehensive about what's going to happen to resolve that imbalance. Anything's on the table, cutting benefits, cutting spending, you know, on this, that, or the other things, raising taxes. So everyone's affected by something that's on the table. So everyone has a reason to be a little bit uncertain about something that has an important effect on economic decisions they make. Key, you know, key example would be a small business thinking about a new product. Company that has a couple of factories, they're thinking about opening up a new factory. They know the demand is there. They can't figure out what the after-tax rate of return is because they don't know what their tax rate's going to be. We've gotten some, some certainty about that with this last measure, but I think there's the uncertainty about how health care costs are going to impact small businesses is, is, is worrying a lot of people in the economy. And other things like that, I think, are 
are a bit of a wet blanket on growth right now. And it's, it's, all, it's almost the case that it, it matters less what we do to get balanced than that we do something, that we choose something and do it. Thank you very much.